So if you have a Bible right now, open to Romans chapter 12. We have one verse that we're looking at in chapter 9. Romans chapter 12 and 13 is where we are in our study in the book of Romans. We're spending about 18 months going through the book of Romans. And when you hit chapters 12 and 13, for me personally, this is uh, some of my favorite portions in all of Scripture that really are beginning to lay out this mark of a Christian, this idea of love. Now that word is used in our culture over and over and over again and everybody claims that word to their side and it's really important that we begin to understand as Christians what's meant by it because the Bible really is what began to popularize it. For the most part, all the way uh, through the ancient world until the New Testament was written, this idea of self-giving love, that's this Greek word agape, was used very, very few places. And the life of this self-giving love is so radical as defined by Jesus that I would argue most of us, including myself, don't really get this. One of the things I've found most helpful, I know Neil Pitchell uh, read this book and he'll recommend it next week because I'll tell him to. Uh, we have them in the bookstore. It's called A Loving Life by Paul Miller. I am not highlighting this book uh, to get you to just go buy copies of books uh, in our bookstore. I really would love for every person in Redemption Church at every congregation to read this book. The subtitle is A Loving Life in a World of Broken Relationships. And it really gets at what is this loving life that Jesus called us to really look like through the book of Ruth. Um, now, if you're guys in here going, the book of Ruth is for women. Women's studies do that. You're dead wrong. Um, there's this incredible man in that story named Boaz, and you can learn much from Ruth and from Boaz. So highly encourage you uh, to go get that book. If you don't get it this week, you're going to get drummed again next week by Neil uh, to buy that book. So we are in Romans chapter 12, verse 9. That verse is going to go on the screen. I'm going to read it, and I'm going to ask you guys to read it with me, because sometimes when you can participate in the public reading of Scripture, it may have the potential to seek deeper into you. It's very short and very direct. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Thanks. I was going to read it first, then you, but you guys are on it. If you get it two times, it's going to sink even deeper. So let's do it again. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. How many of you guys are familiar with the famous book title that's decades old now? Uh, the book's titled, All I Really Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. How many of you guys are familiar with that? That phrase, for some reason, as I get older, always sticks in my head. And as I read the Bible, I didn't grow up in the church, but I think to myself, for those of you who did, that all we ever really needed to know, we learned in Sunday school. And this argument's bigger than that. It's all I ever really needed to know I learned in kindergarten. And when I think about that, I, I think back to kindergarten. And there's one thing I remember more vividly about Mrs. King's kindergarten class than anything else. And it was when we would sit down and sit in, um, cross-legged on the floor, we would look up and there was a, a sign that was bigger than all the other signs in the room. And it said the golden rule. And underneath the golden rule were these words. The golden rule and everything... Do to others what you would want them to do to you. Do to others what you would want them to do to you. I didn't grow up in the church, so I didn't realize until after I studied the scripture that that was actually the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, almost verbatim. He says, and remember this, whatever you do, whatever you do, do to others as you would have them do to you. And then he makes this phrase, upon this hang the law and the prophets. 
Now, if you do Bible study, one of the things is if you can do a, a corollary. Is there another passage that says, upon these hang all the law and the prophets? And there is. Another time when Jesus was asked the question, what is the greatest of all the commandments? He said, love God with all your everything, heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is just like it, cannot be separated. Love your neighbor as yourself. Upon these hang all the law and the prophets. So this statement of the golden rule that Mrs. King had in her class, do to others as you would have them do to you, is just another way of saying love your neighbor as yourself. And this is, in the New Testament, the one command of Jesus. The command that he says is the new command that he gave to us. Jesus had one command, and it was this, love one another. And all the rest of the New Testament, all of these authors of these letters that are basically just expounding upon the teaching of Jesus, expound upon this one phrase, love one another. So in that instance, this author, Robert Fulgram, who wrote all I really needed to know I learned in kindergarten for me was true. I learned the one command of Jesus, love one another. We're in Romans chapter 12 when we hit verse 9. And at the very beginning of Romans chapter 12, Paul says this, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, all of your life, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. What is good, that's in our verse today, hold fast, what is good, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So understanding what is good comes from the renewing of your mind, not being conformed to the world, but being transformed by the renewal of your mind that we know is according to the ways of God, which are displayed for us in the word of God, which we transform our mind by the person of God who is in Jesus Christ that is laid out for us in personal pulsating form in the scriptures. This transforming of your mind does not just enable love, but Paul would say in Romans 12, 9, it enables genuine love. He says, let your love be genuine, Romans 12, 9. Paul's qualifying word genuine means exactly what you all that know the English language know it to mean. It means real. This is real love. Let your love be real. The only way Paul would qualify the word love is if he knew there were people surrounding him and reading this letter who said that they loved, who in fact didn't love. It wasn't real. He felt the need to say, let your love be real. Which means there are many of us who read this letter ourselves today who are imposters when it comes to love. This word Genuine literally means unhypocritical, without hypocrisy. The word means inexperienced in the art of acting. So Paul knows that there are those who only act like they love. They're actors, they're performers. Their love, in fact, is fake. That isn't the real character of who they are. When Brad Pitt plays a character in a movie, that's not really Brad Pitt. He's acting. And Paul knows this. There are many of you who are quote unquote loving that are acting. And he says, no, be inexperienced in the art of acting. Let your love be real, authentic. Let it be pure. The question for us as a church, the question for us as individuals is how do we know if our love is real. 
How do we know that personally? If we're willing to take up the task of what the Bible would do for us, examine us. The book of Hebrews says that the scriptures, the word of God judges the thoughts and intentions of our heart. If we're willing to take that up of allow the scripture to read us, to speak to us, we must right now stop and say, is my love real? And the question that comes out of that is how would we know that love is real? Well, he says this in this verse very clearly, that real love abhors what is evil. Real love holds fast to what is good. And real love is, in fact, real. It's tangible. It's experienced. So real love abhors what is evil. It holds fast to what is good. And it's real. It's tangible. Now, put the verse on the screen. I want you guys to see these are commands. And this is a very direct statement. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Keep it up there for a minute. You have to note how remarkable these commands are. They are very simple. You couldn't get simpler. You couldn't get more clear. And Paul assumes something in these verses. Paul assumes that whoever you are sitting in this room and whoever it was that was reading this letter, Paul assumes that you know whether you're a believer or you're not a believer, whether you feel like you're struggling in your walk with God or whether you feel like things are as good as they've ever been. He assumes in this statement, in these commands, that there is good and there is evil and you know about it. Whether you're a believer or an unbeliever is that there are things in the world that we look at and go, that's evil, that's good, and there's a lot of them. So he starts and says, love hates evil. Abhor, he's making a command, abhor what is evil. Abhor it. The word abhor is to have vehement dislike for something, to hate it strongly, to regard it with disgust, to detest it with horror. One great thing when you come across a phrase like that and you do a word study and it pops up a definition, the word abhor means to vehemently dislike, hate strongly, regard with disgust, detest with horror. One great thing is to stop in your reflection upon scripture and go, to make it real to you, go, what do I abhor? What do I strongly think is disgusting? Because it'll make it more palatable for you, more tangible. I did that as I was studying this passage. And I thought, what is it that I regard with disgust? And I thought, the University of Arizona Wildcats. <laughs> like, like, they're disgusting to me. When people walk in with that A on their shirt to this church or to a staff meeting, I feel, I'm going to fire that person. Or if you walk in here on a Sunday with that, I'm like, let's exercise church discipline. Let's go to the final step, step expel them from the church, tell them to never. Like, it makes me sick. I do not like the University of Arizona Wildcats. So that makes it more palatable. I'm supposed to disgust like that, abhor that which is evil, which makes me feel justified, right, in abhorring them. I'm supposed to abhor what is evil. That's what he says. Regard evil with disgust. Now, if any of you are watching the news right now, you saw yesterday that President Obama said we may go into months of airstrikes back into Iraq. Because there's an organization that is now taking over much of northern Iraq called ISIS, which stands for the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria. And most people that you read on ISIS would say um, they make Al-Qaeda look like school children. And what's crazy right now about ISIS is they are doing things that any human being, regardless of faith conviction, would look at and go, that's sick, twisted, wrong, and evil. 
it's sick, twisted, wrong, and evil. I mean, they, pardon me, um, I don't want to be too graphic, but they're beheading people and putting them on sticks. They're burying people alive. They're, and just so you know, it is evil, but it's not just Christians. We're hearing about Christians, but the reality is it's anybody that's a minority. So there are those who followed a faith system that we would not adhere to as Christians called Zoroastrianism. The Yeatses, uh, I think is how you pronounce it. Yet, anyhow, they are being persecuted like this. Muslims that don't adhere to the faith the way ISIS says are being persecuted in the very same ways. And we can look at that and go, this is evil. But let me stop really quick and say, just as though it is happening with Christians and it's happening with Zoroastrians and it's happening with Muslims and it's happening with anybody that isn't siding with ISIS, we must abhor that evil done to any human being. Any human being. Regardless of who it is, we must abhor it, detest it, feel it in our bones, hatred, if we follow the ways of Jesus. There was an article in Newsweek at the end of July saying right now that Jews are leaving Europe in mass that has not happened since the Nazis were in power. Why? Anti-Semitism. Is it heights that most experts say it's never happened since the time of Hitler and the times of the Nazis? We must abhor that is evil. Now I want to say to us as a church, many of us in here know that that's evil. But Paul says here that's not enough. You must hate it as evil. Despise it. It must disgust you. You must have the ability to look it in the face that your hatred would grow. Abhor that which is evil. I have a friend of ours who's a friend of ours as a church. We've supported him some who about a decade ago entered into Iraq uh, seeking to communicate the love of Jesus, began to start an organization called the Preemptive Love Coalition. Love that phrase. It kind of takes military language. Of, we would think about preemptive strikes, and he says as Christians, we must have preemptive love. And as they got on the ground, didn't know what to do, they looked for needs, saw them, felt compassion, and acted and started this organization to give Iraqi children heart surgeries. The majority of these children who were receiving these heart surgeries had had birth defects because of when Saddam had gassed the Kurds. And as these Kurds had been gassed and began to have children and those ailments that they had got passed on through their gene pool, um, certain things affected them genetically, got passed on their gene pool, and many of these kids had heart defects. So the goal of Preemptive Love Coalition was to bring together originally Muslim children to get heart surgeries in Israel from Jewish doctors. Think about that peacemaking. Um, since then, other things have happened. They've flown kids to Turkey and they've done all this, but they've lived on the ground in Iraq. He was brought on CNN the other night. You can look at my Facebook page if you want to see it, or you can Google Jeremy Courtney, Preemptive Love Coalition CNN, and it'll get brought up. And on CNN, this lady's saying, how do you say you want to be about preemptive love? Because when Jeremy started the Preemptive Love Coalition, he coined this phrase that their whole organization would live by, a simple term that said, love first, ask questions later. So even when they faced what they thought would be real danger as a family, they said, we constantly tried to live out this reality of love first, ask questions later. Don't ask questions that prevent you from loving. Love first and ask questions later. Well, this lady on CNN says, how in the world do you do that in the face of such evil in Iraq right now? And he says this. He says a lot of things. But at the point where he says, from a Christian theological perspective, all human beings are made in the image of God. And... Christians can look at this and very clearly say this is evil, but what many of us forget is that very same evil 
resides in our hearts. The same thing that is in them is in us. Now, most of us would go, that's absurd. <laughs> like, I'd never behead somebody and put it upon a stick. But Jesus turns the world upside down in a sermon, his most famous sermon called the Sermon on the Mount, when he says things like this, you have heard it said, don't commit murder. But I tell you that if you have hatred in your heart towards somebody, you've committed murder already. Now, we may sit there and say, hate, I don't hate. But Jesus leaves no room. He says anything that's not love is hate. So if you put up on a spectrum, love and hate, for Jesus, and if I had the time, I could outline this for you from the Bible, there is no mushy middle. There isn't like love, hatred, and just kind of indifferent. It's if you don't love, you hate, according to Jesus. And if we have hatred in our hearts based upon that which we're doing to people, that based upon Jesus' standard of love, we are not doing based upon what we're doing, or Jesus' standard to do to somebody things that we're not doing, that in turn would be considered hatred. And Jesus says, if you have hatred in your heart toward your brother or sister, you've committed murder already. He then goes on to say things like lust. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I tell you, if you've looked upon a man or woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery already. So Jesus begins to reorient this evil. What we think of as evil, that most of the time we are so prone to say evil's everything out there. Which, by the way, those things we've addressed already and many other things that we could list right now, is true. They're evil and you better have the conviction to stand up and say they're evil. But at the same time that you have the conviction to stand up and say that they're evil, you better be able to look in the mirror and say, that very same evil resides in my heart. Sin is evil. Lust is adultery. Anger is murder. Proverbs 18 says that your words, the way we talk with our mouth, have the opportunity to be either poison or fruit. They can kill or they can give life. You choose. Which means we have to sit back for a minute and say, our Words, according to the scripture, are as sharp as knives and as powerful as swords and as explosive as M16s. And Jesus says that those words come from our heart, that when we have that one word that just slices to the core of who somebody is, with the same power that the beheading of a 12-year-old child would have in Iraq right now from ISIS. Our words have the same power. And Jesus says, it wasn't just a mistake. It came from your very heart. So Jeremy Courtney's words on CNN, we talk about these people being so evil, and that is true. But this stuff is in us as well. Is a part of abhorring what is evil. So I ask us, what do we hate? What do you right now hate? And do we hate to the abhor level the sin that's in our own heart. Because Christ is calling us very clearly to hate that which is not love everywhere and to stand everywhere. You hear that? Jesus is calling us to hate that which is not love everywhere, including in our own hearts, and to stand for that which is love everywhere, including our own homes, in our own hearts, in our own communities, in our own schools. We stand for love and we hate that which is not. Let your love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Paul then goes on and says, and we must hold fast. Hold fast to that which is good. Hold fast to that which is good. Hold fast. 
literally means to cling to, to glue together, to adhere. Now, almost every time I'm up here, if you and I have ever had a discussion over coffee or you've heard me teach in an environment, you'll hear me say, I have four kids. Braden and Yale, who are sitting right up here. Braden's eight. Yale's going to turn seven um, in a few weeks. And then I have two girls, uh, Luciana's three and Harmony's two. And Harmony um, really can give us a picture of what this idea of holding fast is or gluing together. Harmony's two and a half, and there's two times around our house that she will show her speed and she shows what it is to cling to something. So there's these moments where I'll get really playful with my kids. And there's these moments with Harmony where I'll say, I'll sit on the couch and I'll see her walking around. I'll go, Harmony, dad's going to get you. And she'll go, woo, and you just see her shake. And then she takes off sprinting, which she shows how fast she is. She's like a Mini Cooper. If you've ever driven a Mini Cooper, they're small and they have a wide base. So you can go really fast and make a turn, and it does not feel like you're on two wheels. It's just like, woo. First time I drove one, I'm like, I'm buying one of these for sure. This is amazing. Harmony's like that when she runs. So she'll run through the house, and you're like, she's going to hit a wall. And then it's Mini Cooper, and she'll just turn. And you think, how in the world did a two-year-old do that? Right? And I'm planning for her track career and how she's going to make me famous. So she'll turn, and then I'll do this laugh. It's kind of like the Scooby-Doo bad guy laugh where I go, and then she'll scream, ah, and she runs, and I'll say, you better get your mama. And then she runs, and she adheres, hold fast to her mom's leg, 100% speed right into the leg of my wife, to which my mom goes, ow, stop it. And then she'll look at me, stop it. And then Harmony will adhere, cling to her leg. And she does it to me at a different time. When her mom says, Harmony, it's bedtime. <laughs> she runs, boom, adheres to my leg. And it's so tight, I'm going, you're cutting off my circulation. Paul says, we must adhere, cling to that which is good. Now think about the word, good. Cling to that which is good. God made the world and he called it good. First Peter Chapter 3, Peter is expounding, as we said the New Testament does, constantly elaborates on this one command of Jesus to love one another. And Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. Listen to these words. When I read this section of scripture, I'm going to read about five passages right now. Think about them. Listen to them. 1 Peter 3, 10 and 11. Whoever desires to love life and see good days... Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. What's good? Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil and it's towards those who do good that Peter defines as righteousness. And one of the ways that good is expounded is by seeking peace and pursuing it. Which means as Christians, we look for places where there's discord. First and foremost, we look for discord that we've created and we move into it to seek peace and to pursue it. We see it in the world and we follow the ways of Jesus who said, blessed are the peacemakers and we seek to make peace. 
The gospel of God is found in Jesus Christ is all about reconciliation. Reconciliation with God and reconciliation with our neighbor. And reconciliation with the entire world that God has made. How do we continue to define good? Well, in the book of Acts, Jesus is spoken of in Acts chapter 10, verse 38. And it says this. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him. I think oftentimes we think about oppressed by the devil and we just go, oh, that's demonic possession. But the result of evil being lavished on the world, coming from the one who ultimately rebelled God, in our sin of buying his word, the enemy's word, unleashed hell upon the whole world. Where we see hell unleashed, discord, hatred, evil, sin, anti-love, we must move into it, to seek peace and to pursue it. Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. Paul, in another letter to the Galatians, says this in chapter 6, verse 10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. So who are we to do good to? As every occasion comes to us, we are to do good to Everyone, especially those who are of the household of faith. Is that because those who are of the household of faith are more important? No, it's because they're closer. You start in your proximity. Do good to those who are around you. Do good to your family. Do good to the household of faith. And yes, the household of faith, we are to display as a community what God intends for the whole of his creation. But we are to do good to all people. What gets crazy about Jesus is everyone really means everyone. Even to the point where he says we are to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute you. So as we see these pictures from the most, and and these are just the best places to start to make the example of how extreme it is, is even the people who are killing other people's children, those people who've had their children killed, are supposed to love these enemies and to pray for those who are harming them. Like, I don't, I don't know about you, but let's just be honest. That's nuts. That is absolutely crazy. How in the world would we ever get the power to do such a thing? Well, the power seems to come from the gospel. In Titus chapter 2, verse 14, he speaks about Jesus Christ, who was God the Savior, gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Jesus went around doing good. He redeems us from our sinfulness, which is defined in Romans chapter 13 as anything that's not love. Remember, there's no mushy middle. Righteousness is defined as love. Sin is defined as anti-love in the Bible. Very clearly. And he says, he redeemed us from anti-love, from sin, so that we might be zealous for good works, which is love. And then 3 John 1 verse 11. John says this, beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Imitate Do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. 
We are to cling to that which is good. Now, here's the major question. We asked the question before, how do we know if our love is genuine? Love abhors evil, it holds fast to what is good. Now, how do we know what is good? Yes, we know generally. Well, a lot of times the best way we get things defined for us is by modeling or by example. We see somebody. So Paul understands this idea of apprenticeship when he says, follow me as I follow Christ. The Christ who went around doing good. There's this amazing scene in the Gospels in Luke chapter 18 where this man comes to Jesus and says to him, he starts the whole way off and he says, good teacher, what is the great commandment? Which seemed to be a big question that Jesus got asked. He says, good teacher, what is the great commandment? And Jesus doesn't just go in and answer what the great commandment is. He starts and he asks this question. He says, why do you call me good? Why do you call me good? And then Jesus' next statement is, nobody's good but God alone. Nobody's good but God alone. Well, that begins to kind of redefine for us, cling to what is good, hold fast to what is good. If we are to live out the good life, if we are to follow in the way of Jesus who went around doing good, if we are called to be redeemed and zealous, passionate, if we are to hate what is evil and Titus 2, be passionate, zealous for doing good, we, must gotta, we have to ask ourselves, where does the power for that good come from? Holding fast to that which is good is, yes, holding fast to good actions, but it's holding fast to the good one, and nobody's good but God alone. It's holding fast to God. And this leads us to the end. Here's the last thing. Genuine, genuine love will abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. And genuine love is tangible. It's real. Genuine means what it means. It means real. And real is defined for every one of us in here, regardless of what we believe. If you said there's real love, you'd say it means tangible. That's why there's people in this room and people all around the world that will have marriage problems, and a husband may say to a wife, you know I love you. And she says back to him, I know you say you love me, but I don't feel like you love me. Now that could be said from a woman who's crazy or from a man who doesn't express his love, right? Either way, I don't want to just make it one way. But here's the, what you really get out of it. Love isn't just a feeling. Love isn't just words. Love is action. It's not only action. It's not less than a feeling, but it certainly isn't less than, ac less than action. For Paul, as you read the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, love is actually more about what we do than about what we feel. This is where the defining reality of love in our culture separates is there are many people in this room and in our culture who would go, well, of course I love them. But they don't ever show it. They don't ever exemplify it. They don't ever embody it. It never becomes tangible. This is why letters like 1 John and James were written, which show to us that this reality of saying we love somebody but not living it has always been a problem of human nature. That's why John says in his letters, hey, you who say you love, if you say you love and see your brother in need and don't meet 
his or her needs, you do not love. And if you don't love your fellow neighbor, you don't love God. So don't say you love God when in fact you're indifferent, which means you hate your neighbor. For Paul, love is more about what we do than what we feel. In fact, for the early church, love was often connected, most often connected, very directly with helping other people out in their various needs, not least of which was financial. Rather than just saying, oh, we care about him. We have warm feelings to him. And as a Christian, it is possible through prayer and through presence to decide firmly that you are going to help someone in need whether you like them or you don't. I promise you that in Iraq right now, there are many Christians who don't like ISIS. Okay? And yet, Jesus calls us to love our neighbors ourselves. We're going to see it here in Romans as 12 and 13 continue, that we're to love our enemies the same way we're to love our neighbor. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. If they're hungry, feed them. If they're lonely, meet them. Now, this is where, again, we have to go, that's nuts. How in the world do we get the power to do that? Two ways. Belief and action. How do I love like that? How do I get the power? How do I train myself to love like that? Because here's the reason. We've used extreme examples today because it's present. It connects with what's happening in Iraq. But the reality is the difficulty of you loving in your own home today based upon the reality that sin remains around us all the time in our flesh, even as Christians, is equally as difficult. It can feel like it's as hard as blessing those who persecute you. It can feel like it's that difficult, that if I'm going to love this person who lavishes hard words at me, who acts like I don't exist, or who doesn't take my needs into consideration, and I'm called to love them, it feels like a death. Now hear this, if you write something down, today write this down death is at the center of love you must die to yourself if you're going to love this is why Jesus himself this is why Jesus himself said you want to follow me take up your cross and follow me what's a cross a death you want to face it you die in this moment you die to yourself that you might live for the blessing and love of somebody else Death is at the center of love. Now, this is where belief comes in. It's in those moments when you go, how am I possibly going to face a death that the only way you can do it is through faith? And in that moment, you go, how in the world can I do this? And you hear the words that God spoke over his son, Jesus. You are my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. I love you. I think one of the biggest problems in our culture is that we've over-sentimentalized love and in response to over-sentimentalizing love, we think it's powerless. And love is the greatest thing in the world. Love is the most powerful thing in the world. A statement of I love you from a father and a son can change the difference between a man who is raised with gross insecurities and a man who is deeply secure, so secure that he can be deeply compassionate and loving with his children, with his spouse, with his co-workers, that he can exemplify true masculinity. The power of that can come out of a child who knew they were loved versus a child who didn't. Love is the greatest thing in the world. And church, it can start now. 
and you go, but that's so hard for me. It isn't hard for you if you sit under those words that Jesus spoke to his, that God spoke to his very son Jesus, you are my child in whom I am well pleased. And you look at the love of God. Okay, you look at the love of God constantly. That's reflecting upon scripture, putting yourself under that which is a waterfall of love that God did for us in his son Jesus Christ. What is love? Greater love has no one than this, than he lay down his life for his friends. And then Paul goes on in this very letter to say, in Romans chapter 8 that we've already covered, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Not while we were lovely. He loved us. If we are lovely, we are lovely because he loved us. That we are to sit under this waterfall of God's love. And in that love gives us the power to love our neighbors as ourselves. Now does that mean we just sit and wait? Like the early disciples sat in the upper room at Pentecost waiting for the Holy Spirit? Yes, but you can't just sit in a room, right? You've got to live a life. You've still got to be a parent. You've still got to be a coworker. You've still got to be a friend. So in the midst of that, how do we depend for that love? We also act. It come, loving, a loving life comes through belief, faith in the love of God, and through loving. Real love comes from loving. Again and again and again and again in the Christian experience, we discover that when we behave towards someone hear this you wait for the love of God through the Holy Spirit to be poured in your heart and you go in the meantime how do I act or how do I act as I'm waiting again and again and again and again and again in the Christian experience we discover that when we behave towards someone as though we really did love them then to our surprise we begin to love them there's a great book on marriage where this guy tells the story of interacting with this husband who said, I've lost my love for my wife. And he gave him an assignment and he said, in the next two weeks, only do this. Write down all the things that you're thankful for in your wife, even if you have to sit and you only come up with one on the page. Write it and then do everything you can possibly do to meet her needs and to do something you think would love her. He came back in two weeks and he said, wow, man, something's changing. I'm acting as though I love her and my heart is changing. It's proved time and time and time again. Let me end telling you a story about John, the same John who wrote in John chapter 12 this statement. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That John... Most church historians would say is the John that was exiled to the island of Patmos by Domitian, the Roman ruler who persecuted Christians, exiled John to Patmos in which he read, wrote the book of Revelation. After Domitian died, church history tells us this came down from um, oral tradition and it was penned by the church father Jerome that after John left Patmos, he ended up in Ephesus. In Ephesus, there was this church there, and as the Apostle John came back in his very old age, he couldn't walk, was very, very frail, and yet he had these students sitting at his feet, for this was the Apostle John, and they wanted to learn from him. And so they'd always say, teach us something, John, teach us something, something powerful. And they said, as they would pick him up and take him into the church, that all these people would say, tell us something. And the only thing John would ever utter, which proved he wasn't much for small talk, is he'd say, children, love one another. 
And they'd wait and go, what else? And he'd say, children, love one another. And they'd wait, children, love one another. Well, finally, after long periods of time, his students would walk him back to his home carrying him, and they were so frustrated. They're like, you have all of this wealth of information. You've penned all of these books. Why, when we ask you to talk, is all you will say, children, love one another? And his statement was, because this is all I have to say, and if we did that, we do everything. This is all I have to say, and if we did that, we do everything, which is exactly what Paul will tell us in Romans chapter 13, that love is the fulfilling of the law. Let's pray. God, my prayer for us as a church is that if we be known by anything, anything, it would be our love. God, we confess to you that we fall so short of that as individuals. We fall so short of that as a church. So we ask you that you would pour your love abroad in our heart through your Holy Spirit, that we might love one another. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.